if all we had this Sunday was five baptisms, 40% were a surprise to their mothers and to us, and that would be enough. And if all we heard today was the reading of the story of Jesus from our children, and to hear them all say the Lord's Prayer together, that would be enough. And if we had just gathered for communion and heard that, that beautiful sermon on, on joy and holding joy in spite of circumstance, that would be enough. Even if we just heard that Highland Camp is coming back, that would be enough. <laughs> but I have good news. There's more. Maybe there's more that, maybe there's another word from the Lord. My name is Shane Hughes. I'm one of the ministers here. I'm delighted that you're here with us. This has been a fantastic morning. Um, and last week when I was up, I, I talked for briefly for a moment about yard art at Christmas, namely blow-ups. And I think it struck a nerve. I think it was the word tacky that I used that struck the nerve. I want to spend some today, time today talking about the real war on Christmas. I'm doubling down on yard art. Just this week, I got a video that was sent to me. I wanted to show it to you today, but it's not good enough quality um, of a bear, a live bear that was fighting a giant inflatable reindeer in someone's front yard. <laughs> the bear went for the jugular. The bear went for the hind legs. Its mother wanders out of the wood. It's just, clearly, you realize this is a baby bear and shoos the cub away, and the yard art remains. Look, it's not my fault if you have bad taste in yard art. <laughs> I mean, and I worked a long time at this moment of this joke. I just want you to know. Like, someone even finds Jeff Nelson attractive. Like, <laughs> beauty is in the eye of the beholder. Lots of people find Jeff Nelson attractive. I, I think he's the most handsome man <laughs> over 60. Uh, definitely the most handsome man on the platform, except for maybe Nate. I don't know. I'm not going to go down this road. Um, but there's something about yard art decorations that I want to... I've been thinking about this a little bit, probably too much this week. But here's my theory. I think there's a barometer about yard decorations around this time. And I wonder if it's the barometer of joy. Or at least the willingness to lean into joy. Maybe that's the barometer. Do you remember three years ago during the, the, the first wave of the pandemic and, and ev everything seemed pretty dreary? It was, it was the winter that I will always remember of our elders gathering over and over and over at the Hendrick Hospital parking lot to pray for those that were on the fourth floor. Man, that year the, the Christmas lights went up in October. Because people wanted to get into Christmas then. They didn't want to wait. They just wanted to jump, vault straight over Thanksgiving. They wanted to get into the joy that Advent brings, the promise that Advent brings, and they needed it now. And I wonder, I wonder if we need a little joy. I want to talk about the real war on Christmas. 
Maybe it's not happy holidays in the Target checkout line. Maybe it's something more. Please pray with me, please. Heavenly Father, we are grateful for your presence today. Our hearts rejoice when our brothers and sisters are added to the church through baptism. As they begin their walk in Christ toward you. And we pray for them and the, the challenges that will lie in store for them in the course of their lives. And our hearts are full of joy witnessing our children proclaim the gospel. And we hold within our hearts hope for them as they continue their walk toward you in faith. Father, in our hearts and our minds, we know that there are obstacles and challenges that they too will face. So we pray our blessing upon them. Christ, the King who came into the world, came to bring light and abundance. And it's only through Him that we find joy. So now, Father, as we turn our hearts and our minds to a particularly evocative text, I pray that you pour through me the gift of preaching, that I might speak your truth and love to these, your people. It's together that the church said, amen. Will you please stand as you're able for the reading of the word? The dragon stood on the shore of the sea, and I saw a beast coming out of the sea. It had ten horns and seven heads with ten crowns on its horns, and each head held a blasphemous name. The beast I saw resembled a leopard, but it had feet like those of a bear and a mouth like that of a lion, and a dr the dragon gave the beast his power and his throne and his great authority. One of the heads of the beast seemed to have, been, uh, seemed to have had a fatal wound, but the fatal wound had been healed. The whole world was filled with wonder. And followed the beast. People worshiped the dragon because he had given authority to the beast, and they also worshiped the beast and asked, Who is like the beast? Who can wage war against it? The beast was given a mouth to utter proud words and blasphemies and to exercise its authority for 42 months. It opened its mouth to blaspheme God and to slander his name and his dwelling place and those who live in heaven. And it was given power to wage war against God's holy people and to conquer them. And it was given authority over every tribe, people, language, and nation. All inhabitants of the earth will worship the beast, all whose names have not been written, on the, written in the Lamb's book of life. The Lamb who was slain from the creation of the world. Then I saw a second beast coming out of the earth. It had two horns like a lamb, but it spoke like a dragon that exercised all the authority of the first beef on its, beast on its behalf and made the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast whose fatal wounds had been healed. And it performed great signs, even causing fire to come down from heaven uh, to the earth in full view of the people. And because of it, the signs it was given power to perform on behalf of the first beast, it deceived the inhabitants of the earth. It ordered them to set up an image in honor of the beast who was wounded by the sword and yet lived. The second beast was given power to give breath to the image of the first beast 
so that the image could speak and cause all who refused to worship the image to be killed. It also forced all people, great and small, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a remark on their right hands or on their foreheads so that they could not buy or sell unless they had the mark, which is the name of the beast or the number of its name. And this calls for wisdom. Let the person who has insight calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man. That number is six, six, six. The word of the Lord. Please be seated. What does Revelation 13 have to do with Christmas at all? Um, I want to show you an image. It's not a great image, but it, it's so useful and evocative to me that I, I, I want to use it as a kind of a, a, a launch pad for uh, what we're going to talk about today. Let's just throw it up on the screen. That's your cue. There it is. All right. Now imagine with me for a moment that we would fast forward 2,000, 3,000 years in the, his, in the history. You know, far enough that um, people don't really know the story of the U.S. or our politics. And, and let's just imagine for a minute an archaeologist is digging through something, a newspaper or some article or digital document, and they find this image. This picture of an elephant and a donkey. And they're eye to eye, close to one another. They've been bruised. They're wearing funny things on their hands. And they're wearing clothes. And they don't look like the donkeys that exist 3,000 years in the future or the elephants because they're standing on their hind legs. And, and one of the, uh, the animals has Gop written on it and the other has Demos written on it. Could you imagine just for a moment how confusing this cartoon would be to the archaeologists that discovered it that had very little reference to the political culture as it happens in America right now. Could you imagine that? You could see, like, I don't get any of this. That's exactly how it feels when we, as 21st century readers, approach the book of Revelation. Because it's full of symbols, it's full of meaning, it's full of uh, references that seem subtle. I mean, you look at this image, you know exactly what it means. It means politicians are, are duking it out, not physically, but rhetorically over some issue. This war that has been waged over and over and over and over, this battle that's been fought, we know what this means. And so, I say that to say this. There are a whole lot of symbols that communicate instantly in the American political context. But you can see how it would be utterly baffling to someone else. And this is the story of the two beasts. You ever go to the gym and notice that, like, there's regulars there? I don't know. Maybe it's, it's time for you to uh, make a New Year's resolution where you're like, ah, this year I'm going to get in shape. I'm going to go. And, it, and if you go for more, like more than three weeks, like most of us, um, you, you begin to notice like there's people there that are usually there when you're there. It's just like your, your schedules intertwine, and you kind of develop this, well, if you're like me as an introvert, this kind of non-communicative sense of camaraderie with them. Right? You see them work out. They see you work out. You maybe nod your head at them uh, in the locker room or as you leave, but you don't really talk to them. They're strangers to you. 
If you have friends at the gym, this is a confession. It's a good Christmas confession. I have taken it as a point in the locker room um, at the gym that I go to to talk as long as possible and as little close as possible to someone nearby to me just to make them uncomfortable. It's just joy. It's just fun for me. See how long I can... And I'll ask them a question after question until it just it's clearly past the point. But there's sometimes this happens. A friend and I were talking about this uh, this week... Um, that sometimes you go to the gym at a different time. Like usually you're a morning person and you get up there before work, but something happens and so you want to hit your workout. And so you go after work. And on one hand, it's like a whole different gym, right? There's this totally different set of people. On the other hand, there's like five or six people that you recognize because they're in the morning too. And you eye one another suspiciously. What are they doing at the gym? Do they live at the gym? What is their purpose there? Um, it was this week that I had a disruption in my schedule. And, and so instead of going to, to my gym, I, I got a one-day pass to Planet Fitness. Now, if you go to Planet Fitness, you're probably going to send me an email this week similar to the email I got about yard art, which is fine. <laughs> Planet Fitness has this brilliant business strategy. Because Planet Fitness does not actually want you to attend the gym. They just want you to pay the monthly membership that's conveniently deducted from your credit card every week, month, so you don't even realize it's happening, right? They don't need you in the gym to make money. Um, and so they did this kind of demographic search, and they realized that the people that are in the gym the longest and stay or go most frequently and are in the gym the longest tend to be people that lift heavy weights. They tend to be people very committed to physical fitness, and so they make loud noises when they lift, and they tend to use certain exercise equipment more than others. And so Planet Fitness was brilliant. In order to have more membership with a, a sense of this wide open space as you walk in, we're not going to have the exercise machines that those frequent users tend to like, like a, a squat rack. We're not even going to have those big, heavy weights uh, in our gym. And uh, we're also going to make a rule that you can't grunt. It's brilliant. They're making millions of dollars a year by making it easy for you not to exercise. Not to do the purpose that you were called to do. It's brilliant. It's a brilliant way to make money. And I've never been to Planet Fitness in my life when it was crowded, when I had to wait, because there's nobody there. Um, so the first beast, it rises out of the sea, which in the ancient uh, Near East in the first century is a symbol of chaos. There's a, going to be another part of Revelation where the, the, the reign of God describes the sea as crystal. There is no ocean in, in the new heavens and the new earth because chaos is gone. And in 11, chapter, se or chapter 11, verse 7, and chapter 17, verse 8, the beast comes up from the abyss. It doesn't really matter if he's coming out of, of evil or out of some sort of, of, of hell. The, the source of the beast is, 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 is evil. And it has ten crowns on ten horns on seven heads. And this looks familiar for, to us because we've seen it before. It's, it's an amalgam of the animals in Daniel chapter 7. It's the kind of the sum total of those four bodies combined into one. It's, the revelator is, is taking uh, Daniel's prophecy and he's making it into one thing. And we're asked the question, who or what is the beast? 
It rules by power. It rules through chaos and brute force. We learn it has the authority of the Satan. It's blasphemed the name of God. It warred victoriously against the saints. And it received the worship of the pagan world. And in the time that this apocalypse is written, there was an increasing tendency for Roman emperors to assume titles of deity. Augustus allowed the eastern subjects to pay him divine honors. And at his death, uh, the Romans proclaimed him uh, Divas, one of the gods. On his coins, Nero was referred to as the savior of the world. And this Roman senate regularly declared its deceased emperors divine. Domitian was redressed as Dominus Adus, our Lord and our God. But it's not just Rome. It's every leader who would wear that mantle. Pol Pot, Stalin, Saddam Hussein. Every bully on every playground that learned that might cannot make right but you can get what you want if you're violent for a time. And then there's this second beast that rises from the earth. It looks like the lamb, or at least it sounds like a dragon. And it's every slick snake oil salesman that promises cures from cancer to global conflicts. And it looks like it has the power to do minor miracles like Simon Magus, who makes statues talk and other parlor tricks until all of a sudden he looks a lot like Elijah bringing fire from heaven. It's the Christian speaker who leads people astray. And it's probably not wise to name names, but you can find them. The Branch Davidians, David Koresh. Scientology's Elron Hubbard. In our own movement spurred out of the international churches of Christ. And even now in America exists in the radical religious right, masquerading white nationalism as gospel. It's easy to find the second beast when you see it. It's simple. It's when a clever phrase or a seeming irrefutable argument allows the exploitation of human beings for things such as wealth or Elitism, materialism, consumerism, or imperialism. When the gospel gets twisted so that human beings begin to get trampled, you know, or at least we can smell together, that, that second beast, the beast from the earth. Augustine writes, And what this beast is, though it requires more careful investigation, yet it is not inconsistent with the true faith to understand it of the ungodly city itself. For the community of unbelievers set in opposition to the faithful people and the city of God. For to, this, uh, for to this beast belong not only the avowed enemies of the name of Christ and his most glorious city, but also the tares which are gathered out of his kingdom, the church, in the end of the world. And it's clear from Revelation 13 that the second beast legitimizes the first beast's cruel rule. And makes war on believers. And I wonder what a church looks like when the second beast, the beast of the earth, is put in charge. Now don't take this out of context. 
but I think it looks a lot like a Planet Fitness. I think it takes serious believers who are dedicated to their task, and it removes the tools and the disciplines and the drive, and instead creates an environment where you don't really even have to show up. You don't even really have to be there. It's okay. We'll just take your money anyway. We're not going to ask anything of you. I think it makes an anemic church when the second beast is put in charge. And then the revelator ends this text with this curious phrase. This calls for wisdom. Let the person who has insight calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man. That number is six. Six, six. And this is where Revelation gets a little tricky. And in the first century in Hebrew, you used letters as numbers. It's kind of like the Roman numeral system. And, and you could put in normal words and find out what numbers they are. For instance, if we were using the, the Roman numeral system, the word civil, if you can imagine that in your head, C-I-V-I-L is, I think it's 157. Right? C-I-V-I-L. And civic is 207 because it has two C's instead of one L. So you see how that works. In the system, the Hebraic system that John is using, different letters had different numerical values. And so you could figure out the value of all sorts of things. And in my revelation, uh, in the section on my uh, on revelation in my freshman class, I'm going to do it this spring, uh, we have this worksheet to help you figure out like what your number is based on your name. And so you write out your name and you take out all the vowels and then you translate that into kind of a Hebrew-ish and, and then you figure out what your name number is. And, and the students love this. This is one of the most engaged classes that they're in because they're figuring out what their number is. And I just cross my fingers every semester and hope that no one ends up with 666 because that would be awkward. And it's, it's undoubtedly that this is a, an attractive kind of game to play because many theologians and interpreters have done this very thing. And they've tried to force the foot of many church leaders into that beast glass slipper. It's the Pope, they would say. Or at least the Protestants. Or it's the New World Order. The... The sign of the beast is the MAC address on your iPhone, or it's the RFID chip that is implanted in your hand, or it's the microchips they put in the vaccine. And you can figure out what your number is. But I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to demystify the whole thing in just a second. Do you want to know who the beast is? Do you want to know what the number is, 666? It's Nero Caesar. John is talking about Nero. He's talking about an emperor that persecuted Christians and made their lives impossibly difficult. And we know that this is true because there's a textual variant in the book of Revelation where instead of calling him Neron Caesar, which is how you would do it in, in Hebrew, they call him Nero, which is how you do it in Latin. And that variant has the number listed not as 666, but 616 because that last N or new in Hebrew is like the L in Roman numerals and it's worth 50 points. So we know who it is. But there's also this specter. G.K. Beale notes that another perspective on the uh, number of the beast rejects Gematria, envisioning the number not as a code to be broken, but as a symbol to be understood. 
So maybe it's like that picture of the elephant and the donkey. Because there are so many names that can come up to 666, the most systems require converting the names to other languages and adding titles when convenient. There's no consensus. No one can agree. Given that the numbers are used figuratively throughout the book of Revelation, you can interpret this number figuratively as well. Because seven is a number of completeness that's associated with the divine. And six is incomplete because it's one less than seven. And three sixes mean completely incomplete. Other scholars focus not on incompleteness, but on the beast's ability to imitate perfection. That is, to appear authentic. Since the number six is one short of the perfect number seven, the beast's number bears most of the hallmarks of truth. And so it can easily deceive. If you want to know the number of the beast, it's, it's planet fitness. It's the church that claims to follow the gospel, but does not care for the poor. It's the church that will not honor the least of these among them. It's the church that has the wrong symbols. Symbols of empire, of vengeance, even more. It is not the way of the Lamb. Because if you turn the chapter from Revelation 13 to Revelation 14, as terrifying as those, those two images are of the beasts of the sea and the beasts from the earth, and as, as evocative as my imagination goes when I think of those things, the rest of the story of the book of Revelation, the apocalypse, is clear. It's the story of the Lamb. And in Revelation 14, what you see is that in heaven, the Lamb also has beasts. And they spend all of their time praising God. And there's also a mark on those who believe it's the name of God written on their foreheads. And there is a real war on Christmas, but it's not about bears attacking blow-ups. But the clever deception by our own righteousness that we can be worthy. By the clever deception that by our own might we can have peace. That by our own hand we can manufacture joy. Because it's not found in the beast or in Babylon or in the commerce of the world. But you can only find it in one place and that's Jesus Christ to the glory of God the Father. Would you please stand for our benediction? Highland, may you be filled with authentic joy this week as we celebrate brothers and sisters who have confessed the name of Jesus, as rejoice with those whose names are written in the book of life, that you have conquered this world, even death. Go enjoy and go in peace.